Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonster.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com. Hello, listener, and welcome to Great Designs. My name is Tim Kilfoyle, and I'm happy to host our Great Designs podcast, shining light on the complicated world of electronic design. Great design can be a challenge on its own, but it can be tougher to know where and how to get good information. We know this, and we help navigate through it every day. We built the Great Designs podcast to be a low-pressure, content-rich environment with topics that matter to you. Make us a regular stop and be informed. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Great Designs Podcast. This is Tim Kilfoyle, and I am joined today by Rob Tavi of IBS Electronics. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for the invite to coming on to your little podcast show here. Sure. We Having a giant guest like you is really going to put us places. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Th- thank you for that. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, you and I actually first... I'll say spoke, but I contacted you through LinkedIn because I was I was intrigued by what you were doing in the electronics industry, specifically regarding digital marketing. It's something that we as a company are trying to put more and more emphasis on. We're learning as we're going. And you seem to have gotten several things right. And clearly, you've got your own studio. You do this multiple times a day, it seems. But honestly, it's it's become old hat for you. And I just... I'm curious to find out what the background is that you had before you jumped into, and let me just say specifically the the podcasting, because you've got a great studio, it looks great on screen, and I'm curious to know what's the background you had that took you into this? To be honest, I did not have any background in the studio. This was 2019, maybe a little little, uh, short story of 2019, um, I have a friend of mine who's in a different industry who's really got into digital marketing and process and really building a brand. And um, we've known each other for about 20 years. And he's like, you travel the world, you visit all these factories, you go to all these countries. Why don't you put it on, why don't you do a vlog or put it on and show people uh, or show your customers and everybody, vendors, everybody out there, what you do on a daily basis, what goes on with little clips. So back in second half of 2019, um, with my iPhone, I started just recording, going to different facilities, going to Asia, going to different countries, just recording with people five, a minute clip, two minute clip. But again, it was it was very difficult uh, because talking into that camera was hard. You can talk in front of the audience, but that camera lens throws you right off. So it was a lot of reps I put in. As I call it, put in the reps, I put a lot of reps. So I started putting doing a lot of that, uh, traveling, doing thing, doing company presentations in front of a camera, getting comfortable. Um, and then going fast forward into 2020, uh, where we just saw each other, ERA 2020, I, t- I came to the show, first time to the sh- conference um, with uh, my marketing manager and some of my global ops. And I'm like, you know, why don't we do some recording every day? Why don't I just tell a, a, a synop what happened every day, daily updates. So I started creating videos daily, five to eight minute videos of just sitting there in the room, in the big room by myself and just with a Bluetooth microphone and an iPhone and doing the updates. I did that two days in a row, and uh, which I got comfortable. And then on the spot, I interviewed Walter Tobin. And I asked him, can I ask you five questions? This was random. This wasn't set up, wasn't anything. 
I was extremely nervous, to be honest. I tell everybody, I mean, I was nervous. I've never done it, and I couldn't even say Electronic Representatives Association. I was so nervous. I kept this wiser, so I said ERA. And uh, so that point we talked, and it just clicked at that point. I'm like, wow. And he was very impressed. Uh, I was watching Walter, and to get the affirmation, like, wow, you guys are doing something different. And from that point on, I mean, three weeks after that show, we went, lockdown happened, right? So that lockdown happened. So that whole, that was like the big entry into a lockdown happened. So what I did the first week of the lockdown, every week I would, you can still go into my YouTube and look at all the videos for probably 10, 11, 12 weeks. I created a video once a week, giving updates of our company, what's going on in the world, what's happening. And I start getting comfortable having fun with it and getting more creative. And um, I we got to a point where I'm like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build a studio because we took some of our budget for trade shows and I built a studio in the office. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I only asked, everything started with an iPhone. So I asked my friend who had a studio, but he gave me a list of stuff. I bought everything. Again, you could buy everything, but it's putting together. You need an engineer, you need the process. So I kind of took it from a basic iPhone Bluetooth to the full process. I went head first. I learned the hard way. Um, it, was, it wasn't as easy as everybody thinks it is. I did thousands of videos put in a lot of time and effort. Again, during the pandemic, we didn't have a lot to do. So I was just connecting with our team, keeping the motivation, doing videos, internal motivation videos for the staff that we're all here, we're all working together. And that's really where I put in. The internal videos is really where I got comfortable. So once I did all these internal videos to the staff globally, I started getting publicly and doing them. That's, it, it started flowing that way. So it, it's taken time, you know, um, but it really, that's really how I got to where we are in 2020. Great. So, and I'll ask you more about that, but I want to first explain for us your title. I think you've got it listed as the chief at IBS Electronics, yeah. but tell us about the company, kind of the, the 20,000 foot view. What is it that you do now? How did you start? Where are you guys operating? Okay. Well, where IBS Electronics started in 1980. It's a family run business. My father started it in 1980. He was a power supply engineer here in Southern California. He worked at a power supply company for about four or five years, worked in engineering the inventory warehouse and saw demand and the need for distribution back then. A lot of power supply companies were in Southern California, I mean, in the, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. So we started a little company um, supplying, then start supplying to the company he worked for and the other companies. And that's really where the company grew. To, that's where it started from that point. So I was kind of bored into it. I really didn't understand it back then. I was very young um, and just moved forward. And my father expanded it into it. So back in, in the mid to late 90s, when I started getting graduate uh, high school into college, I started working and interning in the company, warehouse process, what we're doing. I had to understand what distribution meant, understand what the components are. And I uh, went to school and um, I started little businesses on the side out of the out of the distribution, but like just little things. I was selling excess inventory in the 90s, trying to buy from our customers and trying to just understand what's going on. And really, I had, um, again, made a lot of mistakes and process, but understand the, the sales model process, inventory, MRP, process management. Went to school for operations, manufacturer management. Got that done during that same time I was working. So about 2020, 2020, uh, sorry, 2001, I started full time. Um, working alongside my father and, and just going around. And we at that point, we started expanding to Asia because a lot of the our manufacturing mistakes are today. So I started traveling to Asia and helping set up all those operations. And uh, by 2010, I took over the whole operation. My father kind of stepped back and I took over the operation. And my goal is to expand the distribution network 
have soldiers on the ground because a lot of our customers build design in the states and they transfer production out there. We need didn't want to lose our design business or the logistics, so we we set up operations in nine different countries in Asia, and uh, that how how it come to be. So our company, um, to give a nutshell, what we do, we're a uh, design solutions company, distribution company, logistics. Um, we do a lot of added value services. We do some small EMS. And then we get into some production downtimes mitigation. So we're really a hybrid, like overall full 360 bespoke, as I call it, bespoke distribution. That's how I've changed and through the last 40 years, things have evolved through the digitalization process and and really listening to our customers and trying to follow what their needs are, anticipating it to help them service the solution they need. Wow. So nine countries. So um, distinguish for us what those particular locations are doing. Are these sales offices? Are they distribution yeah. locations? What, what what exactly do they look like? All all the operations right now in Asia are the first start with sales, of course, everything starts with sales. So they're all you know, that was started as a small maybe a work from home office. So we started setting up our first operations in 2001 was in Hong Kong. Um, we set up the operation that was logistics, uh, sales, procurement, uh, management, finance. Then from there, we expanded into um, that because we expanded into China in probably 2003, 2004, opened an office in Shenzhen, China. Of course, sales, procurement. We tried modeling and, and having that same model in every country start expanding there as, as that was the era where China started expanding quickly. So we wanted to be there and a lot of our customers were there. And then we went into uh, Singapore. And we actually procure. We bought a company back in middle of two thousand five, six, uh, out of Singapore. We took uh, and we we acquired them. Their owner came work for us as our vice president, and we got a foothold of a Southeast Asian marketplace. So between Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, um, and and now um, and then we got into Vietnam and also India. So in all these all these geographic locations the only office that we actually do not have a only country we don't have a physical office in is indonesia currently we only have local sales reps from home all the other ones and the major logistics centers for us is california and hong kong and we have three p and singapore and then we have three pl locations in like philippines that are some customer centric because some of our customers ask us for local because they're in a different zone local stock so we do a lot of those services catered uh to the customers requests got it so we sat i think we sat together in a few of the sessions at the era conference this year and something that i've brought up in fact i brought it up to several people i'm just going to mm -hmm. ask you this because it's something that i see in the marketplace but it you seem to be following this customer centric service point bring the service to the customer but the distribution the large distributors and obviously you're not in that same scale with respect to some of the biggies say the top five ten people in yeah. the industry i'm sure you have goals to get there and i'd love to hear if that is the case but my point is with these the the pointy end of the top of the market their scaling to size is so huge that they don't necessarily take the service point to the customer. They're counting on drawing customers into them like an Amazon or like a just a large scale transactional platform. And I'm curious, do you do you agree with that, number one? But but do you see what you're trying to do with your own organization differently? In other words, am I right in saying take it to the customer, don't count on the customer only coming to you as a transactional platform? Yeah, let me uh, take that back. So we all wanted to be like the big distribution companies, you know, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like, oh, we want to model that. We want to model they're doing. We have to follow that. And about over a little over 10 years ago, I realized that 
I can't compete against these uh, 900 pound gorillas. You know, these are the in there. They have some representative these lines. They have money. They have power. They have manpower. So we need to build our own unique uh, niche business model um, that it's it's not competitive as in general is because they have certain lines and brands and services, but it's also catering to a specific customer that fits our model. It's not going after all the tier ones with all the high revenue. It's going after certain tier two or tier three OEM customers and also EMS customers that can use our service that can add value to their engineering and an extension of their an extension of their whole procurement uh, and engineering procurement supply chain. So with the engi- with engineering like OEMs, we can do a lot of help on the engineer value engineering. With the with the EMS, we can help them on logistics and procurement. So adding value of being part of the supply chain instead of just doing transactional business of here's a component, here's a price, here's a component adding value to help them because these customers don't have all the know-how and especially since we are a global company we have a lot of um we're very flexible to the ways we can do it we're not really regionally located we have a global system that we can procure purchase anywhere from the world and transfer inventory to the systems a lot of these companies when they outsourced or when they moved production from one country to another from us to southeast asia to china they had a supply chain in place and then they had to, they sent it to a site and there, it was hard for them because they still wanted to procure from those same suppliers because those suppliers have worked for long term. So we actually sometimes got in the middle and, and did a VMI, vendor management inventory. We would procure maybe 20, 30% of it and give them that service so they can keep the same product line. They know the quality, the traceability of the product. They know where it's coming from. So we giving them that as well as helping them add some added value engineering because of course, a lot of things in the last 10 years costs. So a lot of people's cost competitiveness, you know, the pricing, you know, lead times. So we started deciding, like, you know what, why don't we have internal engineers, SQE, you know, FAEs, processes, and also be a logistics expert. Because, again, it's all about, again, price is number one, but also comes to the service. Because sometimes the tier one supplier could supply to all these customers. But, again, is they don't go outside their catalog. They don't go outside, maybe they're, they have 300 lines, maybe the top 10 is all they focus on. And sometimes they don't give that extended service to these guys. So we can come in and fit in it and fit a, a small, again, if there's $500 billion of markets, you know, of components spend, if we can come in and take 5% of that, you know, take something to do with that can help do it. And a lot of our components are um, in, we deal with a lot of indirect materials um, into uh, past electromechanical, a lot of custom goods that are non-standard, not off the shelf. So you just can't go, It's not, you know, and then these other, their key suppliers don't want to deal with that. They just want to deal with their product line. So again, there is a lot of room for that. And again, it's keeping that clean supply chain that there is no disruption that's the number one thing that's where today it's full disruption because of lean just in time has happened and it kind of broke, you know, so yep. we keep, we come in to mitigate that to help them keep a sustainable uh, MRP in production. Okay, so we talked podcasts in particular mm-hmm. and, and yours, of course, is a, is a video cast with video. We're not there yet. Yeah. Hope to get there soon. But with respect to digital marketing and what you're doing today. Tell us what some of those things are that you're doing today, because you've got a handle on more than just the podcast, video cast. You've got much more capabilities with respect to digital marketing. And I'm curious, where are you seeing the greatest return on that today? And and just some of your background and, and how you got yeah. started with this. How I got into digital marketing space is like we always we always want to be marketing. How do we how do we uh, build 
brand and build value and build visibility, right? I mean, marketing is visibility. So we had to really rethink the way we do it because we're a smaller company with smaller budgets. We can't gorilla everything. We can't do all these click, all the SEOs. We can't pay for everything because there's a lot of costs involved. So for us, the digital branding, it, again, it started and uh, it started right when we wanted to go digitalization of our whole infrastructure back in 17 and 18. Like we want to go digital. So how, what does that digital mean? It's having and also because you can have all this fancy stuff, but if the people don't meet it. So in, we started building out in 17, moving our systems to dig, as you can, a digital infrastructure digital processes, having uh, CRM systems, having, you know, we had teams back in 2018, but now everybody has, but that was the first ones produced. We had certain things of how do we get people more digitalized? Because it's hard to change. It took me about two years to change the mindset of the people to use these systems. Using CRM systems, like contact resource management systems, that's tied to our ERP, that's tied to a CMS, which is a contact uh, a customer, you know, customer marketing system, you know. These are contact management, these are all these, processes is what are all these little acronyms and terms mean it's like but it's using them to and it took many years and still today we're still trying to optimize it but for the digital footprint is how do we get in front of the customer to build visibility that can lead to credibility that can lead to opportunity right that the, at the end of the day is you can't ask for orders you can just ask for opportunity so for ourselves is how can we take a smaller size company and and make a difference to build who we are what we do and get it out there and through that digital marketing point is building content that is fun and as myself i'm very curious so for me getting into this podcast was a, a great trajectory and a platform that i can talk to everybody it can be our competition it can be to a manufacturer representative it can be anybody in this, any livestock be finance whatever i wanted to get into and understand how they function and it's about them and how everything works because everybody has a story to tell every successful person every successful executive has a story to tell and for me i learned from that. it's like a book so i took a lot of that data information and i realized okay these companies are doing this or these companies are investing in this we can't invest at that scale but this looks to be the direction that we're going. So those podcasts not only educate myself, but I made it public to everybody. It was, you know, I'm just questioning. So I am sharing that. And that's what comes to the marketing standpoint is trying to democratize the industry, right? Democratization of leveling the playing field, of giving everybody the same information. There's enough business for everybody to succeed. It's just what you do with that data to target your customer base. And for me, it's like, we, the company, the, this, the ecosystem can grow together. The way it's grown in the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years of hardware industry is kind of going separate. They're all kind of siloed. But today we're in this inflection point of digitalization and process that the supply chain's kind of broken, communication's broken because systems aren't communicating. Data isn't communicating, which is kind of making it hard for a lot of representatives, manufacturers, and distributors to work together because nobody wants to share certain data because there is there is such IP, but there's basic data you can go on anywhere in Google and find. So it's how do we democratize that? How do we share it? How do we learn it? How do we lift the industry up together and bring awareness to who we are? At the same time, that visibility and credibility brings the... Sorry about my dog here. Uh, but it, it goes to that building opportunity. Um, and it builds the opportunity for that aspect. Um, and, you know, it, it, it helps us all as an ecosystem. So that's really, I mean, I can get all into it, but I want to give kind of macro version because sure. uh, I'm very passionate about it. But again, it's for me, it's just the collaboration together, just like we're doing on this call today.
Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of the next trends or what you're seeing with um, what's ahead, what is, it, what is it that you're trying to actually get ahead of, say, over the next 18 or 24 months? What are the trends that you see that you're trying to put some money into or at least get into with your people or your, your marketing? Um, one thing is for me is um, my vision, is, which has changed, is very being a very technology-driven company. Uh, that's really the vision we set for the next three to five years ahead. That And we're doing a lot of capital investment into software digitalization to our company, meaning starting um, and we can everybody calls Have you heard the term tech stack, a tech mm-hmm. stack. What does that mean? It basically means a bunch of applications working with each other. They could be stacked up or they just build a pyramid and they they work with each other digitally through an API or a call platform that they can work with each other. So for us is building this technology stack. And it all starts from our ERP system, our enterprise resource, you know, production planning system. How do we build the system that can manage everything? And then we can have our CRM systems, we can have our procurement, our engineering, all that play within it. So right now we're in a full process of of digitalizing the processes because as you know, today is data is key. The the most the most valuable companies in the world are very data driven. And it doesn't matter what scale you're a large business, mid or small. That data is valuable and it's how do you use it? And today we have so much data, but we don't know how to use it because we don't have a system that can articulate it or be smart system that can run the reports for us instantly to, for all of us to make a calculated decision. You know, And that's the thing, of course, a lot of the data is dirty too. It's understanding that. So we're building system to be, instead of being a transactional company, to be a technology driven data company. And as well, which will, the changes are coming is there's a, there's hard to get talent. There's a lot of jobs and positions we need to fill for certain, but these systems can help fill in some gaps of administrative work, some customer service, some smart systems. And then the companies that doesn't matter what scale, they can invest some of that cap, some of that money more into talent of engineering, of leadership or process, instead of those trying to invest in those lower jobs that honestly, unfortunately to say is a system can take over to give them that information. So for every input, and the biggest challenge I think in our company is, we have multiple systems, which causes error. That error is for myself is like dollars going out the door. I feel like error. So every every entry point of a data point's error. So if we have three systems and we have to copy and paste things, every one of those import is error. So if I, we can build a basic one system that we can just start from the beginning and it just flows through and we just update the information as it goes, and it can be clean and come up to an output that's optimized, that's calculated for the sales professional or the management or the engineer to make a better calculated decision or the marketing of what product we should sell, what products demanded. And as well as it's it's a it's not just a one way, it's a two way system that we can also input data from outside um, associations or info and and make that better decisions of the direction we want to do with our companies to grow so capital investments in software digitalization and which includes marketing is i see it this wave in the next three to five years is is crucial for companies to succeed yeah that's interesting we think the same way we just aren't sure exactly how we're going to get our hands on the data yeah. and what to do with it when we get it but yeah. I, I agree with you completely so with respect to products then there are Difficulties, obviously, in the supply chain, there have been for a couple of years. My my question is, do you see any particular categories that are, or even manufacturers, if you want to go there, but who's doing the best in dealing with these constraints and these shortages right now? 
I mean, to name the, I mean, I think everybody right now we're playing, we're all in the same pool. We're all having a tough time. It's just who's mitigating it better than the others. Um, and my opinion is that the better guys we're mitigating are the stocking. I would say, let's talk about distribution, the stocking distributors, the companies who stock are mitigating it better than the companies that don't. I mean, I don't know if I want to name names on them, but I will throw some out there. Um, I mean, I would say the TTI Group, um, the DigiKey and Mauser, these companies that are really stocking, traditional stocking companies, I think they have a little more advantage, even though other companies have just as good services as they do, but they're much more stocking heavy companies that allow them to be able to still deliver to their customers or at least reduce that um, the gap. And that's unfortunately because we were in such an lean model. A lot of companies did not double down in inventory and companies who were very light and just in time were hurt the most because they didn't want to invest on stuff. Because again, some of these companies are public listed. Their margins and liability is a big thing. And it, that's what it's been. It's just pushing margin, margin down. And a lot of those companies have gotten hit, unfortunately. And it's not just distribution manufacturers have too, because a lot of manufacturers are lean. They want to push all the liability of distributors and it goes down the line. And then what happens is the representatives, the sales arms get affected because they can't deliver. It's just a chain reaction every single way. So, I mean, those th few companies I listed, I think they're not doing like astronomically better, but they're doing better in that action that they're more stocking to help give the, again, deliver the customer the product they need for them to produce and them to sell it out the door, which brings in the revenue at the end of the day. Right. So yeah. speaking of DTI and the and the exponential group in, in fact, yeah. which is their distribution uh it's their channel for semiconductor products. We had an yeah. we heard an interesting talk. I presume you were there and heard Michael Knight's talk at the end. And part of what I recall I'll say it's uh, probably the scariest part of his discussion is the fact that we're going to feel pain through 24. And I wanted to just ask you, based on your relationships with your suppliers, what you're seeing in the market, are you in agreement with that? Do you think it's through 24 that we feel this, this pain through uh, microcontrollers and semiconductors? And I'm presuming here a little bit that you play in that market, but I, I'm just kind of curious if you expect pain through 24. As of now, with the components and companies we deal with, and um, I talk to a lot of C-level executives usually, that that is, we're, we're already booked. All the fabs are booked out for 2022 already. They're already halfway to almost booked out for 2023. Um, and we are building more capacity for these, but again, those don't come online for three, two to three to four years. And when they do, um, the problem is the challenge, those are going to take longer because they can't get the components to build the machines. So that's another challenge, you know, and building the infrastructure in the States, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, but so it giving everything constant at where we are, I, I'm in agreement 2023, 20, I think in 2023, we see some reduction in lead times, not back to normal. I think we'll, but it all depends on the global geopolitical atmosphere too. You know, we got into COVID, no one what was going to happen. We're all getting into something else now. We don't know how long that's going to last. That does affect the global supply chain products, raw materials. So there's a lot of indirect factors that can come into this play. But again, I do agree with Michael Knight in the direction he was going. But again, too, is one thing that he said was just look at it. Everything is turning smart. So that it's exponential growth of component usage in the next decade because everything is smart that we use today. And what does that use? It uses a basic component and driver and sensor and battery that has to operate it. So it's exponentially going to keep growing.
Yeah, it was an interesting talk and seeing it on slides, seeing it on a screen yeah. helps to visualize where the actual volume is. For so long, I was thinking it can't be real, but in fact, it is. Yeah. So here's my last question for you, Rob. This has, I could ask this as if an older or if someone in the electronic reps industry had been doing the same thing for 30 years and then all of a sudden asked you how he could get into marketing. But I want to ask it differently because I want to know from you if you had a younger sibling who was entering this industry and they want to know what what are the top two areas of marketing that they, as a trusted family member, should focus on first. So this is someone you know, someone you you presumably love as a family member and they're asking you for advice on where they should put their marketing dollars first. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. Very good question. Um, where would they put, I get, invest in the education and knowledge of social media and business network platforms. Understand the processes, the social media and the LinkedIn's, understand those platforms, how they work, how they process and what that means and what the word digital means, digital marketing, invest into that, look at it and educate yourselves. And it takes time. And uh, and second, that that's the first part is understanding that. Second is get in front of, get comfortable with yourself and self-awareness of who you are and in front of the camera. Because today we live in that digital world and that pro and that process. And that again, that kind of goes to th- there's a three in that. I would say two and a half, three is for the for the sales professional is to create their brand. Brand is key to success in life today. This new gen was gen- we went through the generational things in the ERA last night. Generate this the newer generation coming to the workforce that is an existing workforce. Their social media is their truth. Unfortunately, that's what lives. We live in the social media digital world. LinkedIn could be true. There could be certain things. We live in a B2B world. So LinkedIn is very good for us in that. The other worlds aren't there yet. Um, but get in front of a brand. Who are you? You know, who is Rob Tavi? What do I stand for? What are my values? What, what technology do I like? What do I get into? And people connect in that fashion. So it comes to understanding the social media platforms, how they work and operate, getting in front of a camera of who you are, being self-aware. And that's the number one thing, because sometimes we try to be something we're not. And I learned that the hard way. I have the humility that I tried to be something I'm not when I was in my 20s and 30s. I was trying, and then I got into it, like, it just hit a light bulb went off. Like, why am I trying? Be who you are, you know, because who you are is who you is, right? So that's the, the problem that it is, right? <laughs> so, right? Yeah, so that's how I, it's be yourself. And then, and just understand and, and, and dive in, dig in and uh, surround yourself with an ecosystem that is in that air and 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 be around those people the more you are the more the the more um i would influence you have and the more uh insight and wisdom that can give you of where you should go and what you should look at right so it's interesting i i the, the thing that that i guess i would tell one of the people in our industry because i i do get these questions from people as i'm sure you do but the one thing that sort of strikes me on marketing is you can turn it on but you cannot turn it off meaning you need to turn it on now and you can never turn it off. It's one of those wheels that you just have to start spinning and it has to become a part of your spend moving forward. It's here to well, stay. Yeah, because sales and marketing in a traditional company many years ago was completely two separate. Two separate arms. Just like okay, you are being a representative, you were the sales arm. And then the marketing information was coming from the manufacturer, for example. And then you were just they were just pushing it through you. Today, these things are interconnected more than ever. 
And that has become because you're a sales and marketing professional. You're just not a sales professional anymore. You understand that parking. And I agree 100% with you. Once you turn it on, we're all in marketing. Sales is marketing. But now it's come to a context that it's much more known and there's more tools to integrate these together and to create marketing fixture and measure. At the end of the day, it's also measuring. You can measure much more than the, uh, of the results than you could before. Agree. And I think that's probably the next big step, as you stated already, with big data. So yeah. we have a lot lot to look forward to in our industry. So Rob Tavi, IBS Electronics, I really do appreciate your joining today. You're very busy. Uh, I really like what I'm, what I'm seeing online out of you on marketing, and I'm eager to continue to watch. But thanks again. Thank you, Tim. I, and I wish you best success, and we will work together soon. Thank you for tuning into Great Designs our low-pressure, content-rich environment where we cover topics related to superior designs and electronics. Our content is posted here once a month, and we hope to catch you on our next episode. Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast. It's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonsta.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com.